Welcome to another episode of The Vital Point, everyone. Uh, today's episode is special, a uh, beautiful conversation with uh, Buddhist meditation teacher, Scott Tusa. The episode, the conversation, I just got finished with it, definitely had a particular flavor of um, sort of a Buddhist framework. You know, we, we talked about a lot of Buddhist concepts and uh, Buddhist ideas and use some different vocabulary. And so uh, if you follow that and it feels in alignment to you, wonderful. I think the beautiful thing for me about Buddhism is that you don't have to identify as a Buddhist to get the benefit. I've always considered Buddhism as like a system and a, you know different processes that can be followed for a particular outcome in particular those outcomes of becoming more compassionate becoming more patient um, seeing the world in a more grounded uh, more loving way and a slew of other things but for me those systems are completely sectarian you know they they integrate with any religious or spiritual beliefs that you have or don't have, you know, even if you don't consider that you have any of those. But considering the framework from which we're coming from in this conversation, I just wanted to give you a couple of definitions so that you don't feel lost as you're listening to this amazing conversation. So some of the things that we talked about or some of the terms that you might hear, and I'm just I, I made some notes as I was, as we were talking. So, um, uh, first of all, there's a, a, a term that Scott uses of dukkha. Dukkha is suffering and the inherent sort of suffering that, um, that the Buddha talk about, um, you, you know, within the Buddhist context of that suffering is a part of life. And that pain can be separated from suffering, but that these sufferings are a part of life, no matter how rosy we want to view things. You know, we get old, we die, we get sick, we lose things that we care about. And there's an inherent suffering to that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way that things are. So that's dukkha. We also talk a lot about bodhicitta and a bodhisattva. And bodhicitta is the um, considering and treating everyone with unconditional love and loving kindness and compassion. In the Tibetan Buddhist context, the way that this is expressed is um, that you're treating everyone with the same love that you would treat your mother. And sometimes in a modern context, that can be a little strange because we don't all have wonderful relationships with our mothers. But treating everyone with this unconditional love in a bodhisattva is somebody that practices, well, somebody that has completely integrated and embodied um, bodhicitta as we get into. We also talk a lot about emptiness, the idea of emptiness. Um, which is really talking about non-dualistic 
uh, perspective that, um, you know, things don't have a independent existence to themselves. Everything is relative and interdependent upon everything else. We also, uh, he mentions pujas at one point. Those are like, a like a religious, uh, celebration. Um, and then we talk about, um, Mahayana and Vajrayana quite a bit. And you might notice that those have the same commonality of yanas. Yana is vehicle or path. Um, so those are two different sort of um, paths of Buddhism. Mahayana being the greater vehicle, Vajrayana being the diamond vehicle. Those are those, the direct uh, translations. But the Mahayana being um, the... Uh, giving up the idea of achieving enlightenment just for yourself in stead thinking about helping all sentient beings to Buddhahood and develop. And you do that by developing Bodhicitta and then Vajrayana being the tantric teachings, the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, primarily uh, the, the, the the teachings of transmutation of alchemy of um, yeah transmuting and 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 really cutting through the deception in which we usually see the world through uh, and last but not least uh, we talked a little bit about uh, shamatha or shamatha and vipassana or vishpashyana um, which is meditation. So shamatha is uh, calm abiding, is mindfulness practice, and vipassana is uh, insight meditation. Um, so these are two different aspects of, of meditation practice. So those are, those are a few uh, of the different terms that we used and skip a couple of minutes uh, ahead to the beginning of the conversation. But uh, Otherwise, I hope that you find this little appendix uh, helpful so that you don't get lost in the vocabulary that we're using. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I had making it. When it comes to self-development, no matter the method you use, the vital point is to practice. If you're ready to transform your life and claim the potential inside of you, then you're in the right place. Welcome to The Vital Point. I'm your host, Jonathan Schechter. I'm a psychedelic integration and transformation coach, breathwork facilitator, and an enthusiast of personal growth. You have the capacity to evolve and bring your intentions and dreams into the world. And there's never been more access to so many incredible modalities that can help you on your journey. This podcast will help you learn simple methods you can use to transform your life and share the stories of practitioners who are doing the work so that you feel inspired to go and practice because that's the vital point. My guest today on the show is Scott Tusa. We're welcoming him back to the podcast. He's a Buddhist meditation teacher and practitioner who spent the last 23 years exploring how to embody and live meaningfully through the Buddhist path. At age 16, his mother's death sparked a deep longing for healing and spiritual wisdom that eventually led him to Tibetan Buddhism. He spent his early 20s seeking out and learning from a variety of Tibetan Buddhist masters was ordained by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, as a Buddhist monk at age 28. Scott spent the next nine years as a monk, deepening his understanding of the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, 
engaging in solitary meditation retreats, and continuing his studies with teachers in India, Nepal, and the United States, including his main teachers, uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche and Sokni Rinpoche. Since 2008, he's been teaching Buddhist meditation in groups and in one-on-one -on -one settings in the United States, Europe, Latin America, and online, bringing Buddhist wisdom to modern meditators, helping them develop more confidence, inner wisdom, and joy in their practice. And it is my pleasure to welcome Scott back to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be back. I think it's been like almost exactly a year, right? Yeah, something like that. So it's it's been really great to like reconnect with some of the earlier guests on the on the podcast. You know, feels like a, a good growth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last Beautiful. time we were talking uh from from the jungles of Colombia. We were, yeah. And I remember being very nervous if the internet was gonna hold up for that conversation. And I think it barely did, because uh, yeah. we were just I was in the middle of nowhere and uh, a friend on his property put up a um, satellite in there. That was the only way I could do it. <laughs> nice. It was meant to be. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was, before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the, the kind of concept that sometimes I think we have uh, in terms of idealizing um, a monastic life or this idea that the maybe the problems that we're encountering or the the solutions that we feel like we need can be found elsewhere you know be, can be found by going into retreat or becoming a monk um i've had conversations like that with with my partner you know um at one point this was this is when i first started studying Buddhism, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and I got really, really into it. Like, I was like, this is the answer. This is everything I've been looking for. And after I, you know, just dis discovered and started practicing Tibetan Buddhism, uh, doing a three year retreat seemed like the thing to do, like the answer to all yeah. my problems. And, you know, I, I, I've at least hit pause on that <laughs> aspiration for, <laughs> for many years, you know, it, it led me to Tibet and back to the United States. And I'm fortunate now to be, you know, being more involved in teaching Dharma and practicing Dharma in my own way. But I, I don't really have that aspiration anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But my partner being the supportive person that she is has said, well, don't, don't you want to do that? And there's been times where she's like, <laughs> I think everything would be so much simpler and better if we just both went into three year retreat. Like we wouldn't yeah. have to worry about this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, uh, I don't think it's that simple. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're really thinking this through. So I know that you are uniquely qualified to really talk about this topic based on your experience. And I think it's a good place to jump in. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it's one of these, you know, it's one of these gray areas uh, where, where yes, like, you know, in order to deepen in something as vast and, and profound as, um, you know, any of the Buddhisms, you know, still existent in the world, um, you know, you and I have more of a connection to Tibetan Buddhism and those lineages, um, you know, in order, in order to deepen in them, you know, we, we need to spend time. And I think that's, 
I don't even think that's necessarily a spiritual perspective. I think that's just sort of like a, like a human habitual, you know, reality yeah. of anything. Like if, if we want to, you know, anyone who's, who's, you know, quote unquote gifted or, or, you know, genius at what they do, pretty much a hundred percent of those people, maybe with like a very few who were just born very unique with, with a talent, but pretty much a hundred percent of those individuals um, spent hours and hours and hours and hours at their sport or craft or, or instrument or, or job, you know, work or whatever. And so, so there's just this kind of undeniable reality, I think of like the time we need to put in into it. But then I think there's this gray area or question of, well, well, what does that time have to look like? Right. And, and that's often, you know, with, with mentees and students I'm working with, that's often the question because most people I encounter, they don't have the, the, the same situation as I did where I was able to become a monk at 28. I mean, even before that, I was able to go into some retreat and practice quite a bit in my 20s because it's just what I was interested in. Um, I mean, um, among other things, <laughs> I was a you know recording engineer and you know producing rock bands in the Bay Area, so I was also interested in that and uh, being a musician. But um, but yeah, and then at twenty eight, I was able to become a monk. I was able to spend probably a total of three or four years in retreat. I haven't really added it up. It's probably like you know four to six months each year in retreat over nine years. Uh, someone better at math than me could probably add that up. Um, and so I was able to kind of like follow that that dream so to speak that you're speaking to that 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 you're having your you know that conversation with your partner about and um was it beneficial yes you know to you know could, could i say like could i sit here and say i'd be in the same in, in the same relationship as i am to my dharma practice if i didn't go through that no i mean of course not you know our life is cumulative right uh right. for anything we do but I also sit as a householder with a young daughter now and, and a partner and, you know, in this kind of like situation, I never thought I would be looking, you know, living in, uh, uh, I mean, I live in Latin America, but living in, uh, you know, a box among other boxes, right. Meaning like, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of suburbia that I loathed as a teen, though Latin America is <laughs> a little different than the suburbia of the United States. Suburbia is plural, but, um, but yeah, so so now I'm having to really not only integrate, you know, what I was able to deepen as a monk and as just, you know, in, in serious solitary retreat time, but but also look at my practice differently. And and I'm mentoring people who, like I said, don't or didn't have that opportunity. And and I'm finding that there are lots of ways to practice. There are lots of ways to deepen. And it, it all comes down to for me, I was talking to someone the other day and it really came down to Conviction, these are not, not only these three, but these, these three are major, I think, for us. Conviction, commitment, and structure. You know, because I think this is where it gets confused. First of, first of all, it's, it's difficult to develop conviction in, in deep right. dharma, as, as you know. It's not easy. I mean, you and I, you know, we're similar in a way where I think we got a big hit in the beginning. And then we, you know, so-called, oh, I hate that crypto took this term away from us, you know, that got red pilled, you know, like, like from the matrix, uh -huh. you know, where we, 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 we took the, it, I think it's the red pill, right? You take the red pill and then you wake up, you so. know, you realize you're yeah. in the matrix, right? Right. I think it's kind of like that when you have this experience of, of discovering Buddhism and, 
um, and and you have this hit where you're like, wow, this is it for me. Mm-hmm. This is this is where the wisdom is. This is what I want to explore and use as a structure for my life. And to me, that's a type of conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, for the listeners out there, red pilled also means now that that you that you've been you've seen the light of Bitcoin. That that's why I said that it's become a crypto phrase too. Anyways, uh, no comment there on <laughs> pro or against crypto. Just just want to put that out there, right? It's not a uh, denying or accepting of. Um, but anyways, um, yeah. So I think I think that that brings a type of conviction. But then we need some commitment based on that conviction, and that commitment I think comes from study and understanding of the Dharma and deepening of practice. Um, and connecting to to a view, like we were talking about a little bit before we hit record today, too. Like, you know, how, how, you know, I see a lot of meditation practice without purpose, or the purpose is kind of a little bit nebulous. It's not so clear. Or um, people get bored because they're like, they have a limited purpose, and then they sort of reach a limit with that. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, there's kind of just a few thoughts initially on it. Yeah, the the conviction i think is is a big one and i for for me i i think some of what changed was seeing different people's perspectives you know like uh when i when i did go to tibet and i was you know around a lot of monks and i saw that here were my idea going over there was every monk was going to be this holy saint that was going to be into meditation and much better in practice than I was. And I saw monks that were like regular kids and regular people just wearing robes. And, um, you know, I I was uh, just recently reading, you know, something very similar in um, uh, After the Ecstasy of the Laundry by uh, Jack Kornfield, where he talks about, you know, his teacher telling him that he needed to bow to everybody in the monastery and the resentment about that and feeling Mm -hmm. like, you know, here's this, this guy that was like a farmer and he doesn't really care about Dharma at all. Uh, He's not even a practice, like a really practicing. Why do I have to bow to him? Um, Just because he's been here for two weeks longer than I have, you know? Um, So there is that, there is that like illusion sort of shattered of, Oh, it's the external thing that is the conviction rather than that internal commitment to, to, uh, like you said, approach every situation as something that I can apply my practice to, you know, that, that the life is providing me with these opportunities to practice compassion, to practice patience, to, you know, all the things that, um, we try to cultivate in practice. It's, it's right there. I don't have to go somewhere or take a external vow to, to get that, you know? Um, yeah. The, the problem I see most, I mean, the other side of it is, is the problem, the problem. Yeah. I, I think you named it well, because I don't see the problem as the structure because, because Dharma is malleable. Um, it it can, it can really come into any structure, but, um, the problem is habitual pattern, you know, and, 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 and the way our afflictive emotions of, of, 
you know, passion, aggression, and ignorance function um, through habitual pattern. And so our habitual patterns are really strong. And I think, I mean, you know, any of us who, who get excited about the Dharma, we quickly, after that, we hit a wall because we recognize where our actual habitual patterns are at. And then we, we, we take on the slow and steady path of, you know, the gradual path of, of slow and steady, consistent practice, slow and steady working with mind training, trying to um, work with our habitual patterns. So to me, that's like where the, the core of the Dharma is. It's in working with our, our mental states, afflictive emotions, habitual patterns. Um, and then of course that, and I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like then, you know, even needing to say that's in relationship to the world is, is a little bit, we need to say that now for some reason, because obviously as a practitioner, we all go through phases of becoming very self-absorbed with our practice, you know, but how could that not, you know, the reason I, I was kind of bringing that up is like, how could that not be in relationship with anything else? Because all of my afflictive emotions, all of my habitual patterns, whether they're positive or, or destructive, they arise in relation to something else, another person, a situation, you know, a task, work, money, you know, relationship. So it, it's like, it's like, those are the things where the Dharma is rich in, you know, and I think so there, there's a recognition of sort of like, I, I think for a while we were talking about this in the beginning, but, uh, you know, before we hit record, but for me, there was this sense, you know, part of it, I think, was was a healthy sense of wanting to discover inner wisdom, you know, at the start of, of, mm -hmm. of my spiritual journey, spiritual path and, and the Dharma and Buddhism. But I think there was also a lot of fantasy and, and a lot of, uh, you know, spiritual materialism in the sense that I thought, OK, I'm going to go away. And, and the answer is to leave the relationships or the relation that I was working in. The answer for me at the time was leave that. And then you find spirituality somewhere else. That spirituality isn't inherent or innate to every situation in life, like what, yeah. what you were bringing up. You know, and and I don't. I'm not going to say that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a step for some of us, right? Like, right. Not all of us have to do that, but the Buddha prescribed that. I mean, for a reason, because some of us, our habitual patterns are so strong, we need to go away and explore that fantasy of spiritual materialism mine the practice a little bit and then we can come back and integrate it so so for me that was my path and like i said i don't think i would you know i'm not saying i'm great at integrating it not at all you know but but i don't think i would even have the thought to integrate it if i didn't go away and work a little bit and going away you know we don't truly go away we're still in relationship to the world always that's kind of my point i don't know if we can ever actually disengaged from the world, I think we can create the illusion that we are like in our own mind, which is, is a very high form of spiritual materialism. I, I don't think that's positive, but like I said, you know, it's kind of a natural, it's a necessary step for some of us. And then we, 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 we recognize, well, I can't get out of this. Like, you know, my suffering is pervasive. I can't just will myself out of this. And the more I try to resist, it's like quicksand the more I go down, you know? I don't know. That's kind of my my relationship to it these days. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the more resistance I happens, I just sink further. Yeah. Well, what, what you just shared reminds me of like the the story of the alchemist, uh, you know, that book mm -hmm. where he has to go yeah. through that whole journey to finally come back to exactly where he started. You know, that the treasure was already there 
but he wouldn't have been able to realize that without the journey, the whole, the whole thing is a part of that, you know? So, you know, whether your path does lead you away, you know, to some sort of monastic or retreat setting, um, that's a part of your journey. And also, like you said, you know, um, wherever you go, you're still there. Your mind is still there. Your afflictive emotions and habitual patterns are still there. And, you know, that's, that's, I think the real work is to be able to, to change and integrate those. It, you know, it's interesting. Like I feel, um, so myself, like I've been, I've been practicing, I would say I've been practicing for 20 years, but like I took a pretty large chunk in the middle where I wasn't like actively doing any practice, actively meditating. There was, I felt like the uh, sort of imprints that had happened from my practice and my experiences like definitely influenced me. You know, it was like, mm. if I, if I'm going to the gym for years and years and I suddenly stopped going for a few years, like my body doesn't completely lose all the muscle, but yeah. over the last few years, coming back to a regular practice and meditating every day and really pursuing that study and trying to integrate the ideas and, you know, uh, sort of guidelines, uh, framework, I guess you could say of, of Buddhism into my life. Um, I, one of the things that I'm continuously really, really like astounded by sometimes is, um, how much I'm still learning and, and yeah. like the blind spots and the spiritual materialism and the, uh, things that I discover about myself. Uh, like I, I recently had this, this moment where I was like, I, I really had, it's, it literally stopped me in my tracks and I, I spent days like really digesting the implications of it. I was, I was watching a video with Thich Nhat Hanh and he was mm. talking about being a young man and thinking or having this belief that the Buddha didn't suffer mm. and coming to this realization that of course the Buddha suffered because he was hu a human being. Mm, yeah. And it like struck me like this, just this bolt, you know, of like, Oh, I believe that too. You know, I <laughs> see this, you know, this radiant, like peaceful being, you know, in, in pictures and tankas and books and, of course he's awakened. So he, he must not be suffering. He's overcome all that instead yeah. of it being the way that he's relating to the human experience. And it's, it really took me down this path, not only of going back and re-examining where I've been bypassing certain things, um, but also like really opened, I think some of the things that I'm still working on in, in like a very beautiful way, you know, where it's like, Oh, maybe I don't have to be so hard on myself. Uh, maybe I can have more compassion for myself and those parts of me that, that are suffering, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's just a yeah. lot of, a lot of, it's, it's, it, I find it really amazing, even though sometimes it's very hard to like a hard pill to swallow you know, to, to have those moments where I realize the blind spots and the bypassing in myself. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Same for me. It, it's a constant, you know, I think of it in a few different ways. In one way, it can be kind of like crushing, not in a negative way, but just sort of like, just wow, kind of like, like awe mixed with that rawness, like a bittersweetness, you know? Yeah. And then, and then in another way, it's, it's very, it's very heart opening. Cause I think when we, when we blend it with, um, compassion from a Buddhist perspective, which is, you know, the wish that ourselves and others can be free from suffering and its causes. Uh, and then, and then the understanding of suffering is vast. It's not just sort of outer suffering. It's, it's also every, every moment we're we're in a bind, we're in a, we're in a dualistic, uh, uh, experience that is the, the you know, suffering also. And so, um, so there's kind of like a, like for me, like a sense of like the heart can break open in those moments, which, which is the path, you know, that is the, I, I hear that in what you're saying, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're intending that, but you know, that sense of like, we're consistently trying to work with the suffering as, as a heart opening experience. And, and the moment I resist suffering, my own suffering, whatever, you know, even just sort of like sitting on a couch too long and, and feeling, you know, like I need to get up. The moment I'm resisting that or struggling with that, my heart closes. I can't open the heart because there's just, there's stagnation, there's stuckness, there's resistance, and there's trying to seek happiness on the outside. Or there, you know, I'm trying to seek some kind of, you know, other pleasure or other solution, right? As opposed to just allowing suffering. And so, yeah, I, I really relate to what you're saying in the sense that, yeah, I kind of think of, I, I, I don't know, I, I constantly am iterating what awakening means to me, because obviously, in one way, it's very stupid to think about what awakening is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, <laughs> it, 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 it definitely means we don't have it if we have to think about it. And also, it's sort of pointless in a way, because awakening, at least from our, our lineages we study in, is not a conceptual thing. It's not a thought. It's not something we can, it's something we can experience but it's not a conceptual idea. So, so, but, but I do think there's usefulness in thinking about it because it's also our intention for why we practice, yeah. you know, through, through bodhicitta or the mind of awakening. So I, I had a mentee message me earlier and just say, Hey, you know, am I supposed to cultivate the same intention all the time, like for practice? And I'm like, yes and no. Because yes, there's this intention of, of bodhicitta, the wish to attain awakening for the benefit of all beings. And then, but then there's the, 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 the gray area of like, that's not a, as that unfolds for the, for us, as we cultivate that, as that grow, as our relationship changes and grows towards that over the years of study and practice, that, that becomes more meaningful. And the vastness of that starts to, you know, we start to connect with the vastness of that intention. So for me, it started like as just reciting a chant, you know, blah, 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 and, the, and having the words in my mind and maybe like inspiration towards it, but kind of a vague idea because, it, it, you know, sometimes we don't even look back to think about it as beginners, you know, where it's like, oh, uh, like what, do, what does that even mean, awakening, to awaken for the benefit of all <laughs> beings? What does that even mean? I mean, right. but the problem is we don't know. So we just have to form some kind of intention to start working on it. And then we go on the journey and then that unfolds and that, that the meaning of that grows as our practice is cultivated and, and, you know, our, our nature of mind, you know, if we're, we're able to connect with that more and more, um, in my opinion. So, 
so anyways, I guess that's kind of a long way to say it's sort of, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's this sense of, to me that, you know, I, yeah, that was, I realized what I was trying to say through that. I was kind of, you know, reflecting on what you were saying and then thinking about the sense of that awakening for me, a, a way I think about it these days is kind of like, it's not suffering, but it's not, not, it, it's not suffering or, or you say it? it's not suffering or not, not suffering. It's mm-hmm. sort of, because it's, it's just whatever's in front of us, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, it's not like it can be something different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think what's coming up for me is like, sort of like a, like a radical acceptance of whatever's happening, you know, like, yeah. um, I think, I think one of the things that we're sort of talking about or, or maybe around a little bit and it's not, um, exclusive to Buddhism, I think it's really no. a central part of like any sort of spiritual work or, you know, real good therapy or psychedelic work where you go through these sort of stages. Like at first you're like, and this, this relates to what we started with, right. Of like, I've got to get away from these things that I don't like about myself. And then through that journey, through that pushing away, at some point we start to befriend and have compassion for those parts instead of trying to disown them instead, instead of trying to get rid of them, we go, Oh, this is a part of my experience. This is a part of me. And maybe I can even see what that purpose was for that part at a certain time and like have gratitude and have compassion for it instead of being like, ew, this is suffering and this is Nirvana. And you know, they're two separate things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, it gets pointed out directly that, that, um, awakening itself is beyond, is beyond both samsara and nirvana. Samsara and nirvana are a duality in themselves Yeah. to be sort of, and, and that's where, that's where I kind of was thinking about this notion of, um, of, you know, for us on the path, there's nothing but being with our dukkha and then waking up through that. The dukkha, I don't think is the awakening, but, but the nature of reality is part, is part of any of, you know, the dukkha we're experiencing. I mean, just in any kind of Mariamatha or middle way teachings, it's not like, it's not like emptiness is this other thing, you know, and right. we describe, as you know, you know, the nature of reality, one way to describe it is through the shunyata or the teachings on emptiness, which doesn't mean nothingness. It just means that, you know, we can't, nothing is findable as a singular independent uh, uh, um, permanent entity. And so emptiness itself is also not findable. So it's like, you know, I think we're always trying to find this thing because the dualistic mind, we want to find this, the, the spirituality or the, the pure experience that's outside of what we're experiencing now. But Buddhism is so radical because it's like, no, the, the, the awakening is in the experience. So it's not like dukkha is the awakening. It's that the nature of dukkha is, is already awake. The nature of dukkha is emptiness, whatever yeah. that experience is. And the dukkha is my perception, like I'm looking around, you know, the, 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 the room I'm in, you know, and, and it's not anywhere else. And also awakening is not anywhere else. So it's kind of this simultaneous unfolding. Um, I was thinking this morning, I don't know how, why this came into my mind, because you mentioned kind of how this is also transcends Buddhism for sure. It does. Um, the, I was thinking of like, 
a lot of people ex describe spiritual experiences, whether they're on psychedelics or, or, you know, long-term meditation paths or whatever it is as like oneness, you know? And I was, I was kind of thinking of like, yeah, I understand why they do that. And, and, you know, but, but for me, it's not, it's not really oneness we're talking about. It's, it's infinity we're talking about. And I think infinity is like the scariest thing in a way, you know, like as soon as I had that thought, I was like, uh, like my, you know, partly I was excited by that, but partly I was like, wow, you know, cause, cause I think, yeah, I think, you know, you work with people, right. In, in psychedelics and, and that can be sometimes the experiences people taste infinity there and it can be very scary. It can be very overwhelming. You know? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's shattering you know, of like yeah. all, all, all the ideas about who you are and how the world is. And I mean, talk about the red pill, you know, it's like <laughs> that, that real, that real, like visceral ejection from the matrix, like of Neo coming out of that pod and being like, what the heck is this? Like, it's completely <laughs> alien, you know? Um, and at the same time, it's always been like that. You're just seeing it, you know, from that perspective for the first time, right? So that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, that's, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's vital, I think, you know, no pun intended to think of it like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, yeah. it's not new. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. It seems <laughs> new. And that's that dualistic, yeah. you know, sort of idea of like, wait, what's changed? Well, somebody just pulled the the veil, you know, from, you know, your eyes and you're just seeing it that way the whole time. And I, I think that's an interesting thing about reality as well as, you know, we're, we base the majority of our reality on, you know, less than 1% of the visible light spectrum and consider that we yeah. are getting the whole picture, you know, and I think there's <laughs> like a lot of hubris in that, right. And that just, it, just thinking about that from a statistic perspective, you know, yeah. Not to mention that, yeah, like, I, we know that an different animals uh, perceive things differently than us because they're perceiving yeah. different parts of the spectrum, different frequencies. And and that's the thing about psychedelics and, you know, meditation and these different practices is that they open us up to having a bigger transmitter, you know, being able to receive more information and um yeah, I think hubris is like a really good word. Like uh, we were talking about, you know, earlier about these realized Tibetan, you know, Buddhist masters where there are things happening that don't make sense to you and me, maybe from like a regular sort of life perspective, but they're very real, you know, or not depending on your, your viewpoint, you know, and that's okay either way. Right. Um, but that was, I think for me that some of learning about some of those things was part of that first critical hit, you know, that we were talking about of, of the Buddhism in the beginning was like, Oh, wow. There's these, all these other things in reality that, uh, I I've never heard of, but it seemed really interesting and seemed cool, you know, and seemed like they transcend that mundane experience of me in a cubicle, uh, you know, working and, you know, just, coming home and buying groceries and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And it's, 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 
it's relative, you know, I mean, we were talking before and, and, and I hope, I hope it's okay to mention it in the recording. So, so, you know, you mentioned it in my bio earlier, uh, one of my root teachers died yesterday. Um, yeah. and well, he, his breath stopped, uh, and his heart stopped. Uh, so physically he, he died from a Western perspective, but actually he's in, he's in what's called Tukdam right now or meditation. Um, or I'm not sure if it's actually quite Tukdam at this point. I think it has to go on for a certain amount of days. So, you know, I was thinking of that as you were just talking, because this is a phenomena that, you know, a lot of people are shocked by. I mean, a lot of people would just kind of, how do you say, fluff that off as like, oh, that's just like some bullshit or something like that. But actually right. now there's some documentaries. There's a wonderful documentary called Tukdam, where, you know, uh, out of Richie Davidson's lab, who's, who does a lot of study on studies on mindfulness and, and the brain, uh, they have a team in India that has done research on meditators who are able um, to stay in a state of meditation for, you know, from three days up to a few weeks at a time after death, um, which as you know, but maybe, I don't know if the listeners know, um, is, a, is a sign of a very realized meditator in our lineages. And um, uh, the phenomena from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective is that the, the, we have a gross mind and we have a subtlemost mind. And so the subtlemost mind is not dependent upon the physical body, though it's it's sort of entrenched or, or in the physical body until uh, the time of death, and then it can leave the physical body and go to another uh, incarnation. But uh, but anyways, they so the, but the phenomena is kind of like very magical and mystical for us. Where for a Tibetan yogi, it's just normal, you know. Like right. so, my teacher, you know, I, we don't know all the details, but uh, he apparently. We took a helicopter up to, to, he was invited by some monasteries, I think, in some, some villages up high in the Himalayas. And he went up uh, from Kathmandu and he was experiencing some altitude sickness. And then, so they took him back down to his monastery in the Kathmandu Valley at a lower elevation. And, um, and his, his breath stopped and they tried to resuscitate him, but couldn't. And he's an older man, you know, uh, I believe he's in his seventies. And um, he, Anyways, but, but, you know, he wasn't sick. It, it, you know, they don't know if it's connected to the altitude sickness or not, but, um, you know, great yogis can die on, die at will, meaning like they can control when they die. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's the case here. I, I do believe it is, but, but nonetheless, he's, his body isn't decaying right now. So he's in, right. he's in meditation. So that's a feature of Tukdam. That that's kind of the main feature that scientists are studying how, how is it possible that the body doesn't decay for, you know, a certain amount of days or weeks and what's happening there? And so they're trying to study it from a brain perspective, but, you know, the subtlemost mind is not functioning. Maybe there's some electrical signals happening, but it's not fu functioning so much with the brain. It's because it's, in Buddhism, the, the mind is not brain. The brain helps the mind, but there's also other aspects of mind that don't depend on the brain. But anyway, so, um, you know, it's very real for me. You know, I just watched this amazing documentary called Tukdam like a few weeks ago. And then here's my Lama, one of my main teachers displaying this right now. I mean, you can go on YouTube and, and watch him in meditation. Uh, and, and so, but, but his breath has stopped. So anyways, um, yeah, I was just thinking of that as you're talking because uh, it's, it's when we, Oh, that, that's, that was my point. You know, for us, they're very like, how do you say it? You know, it's sort of this question of like, what is, what is uh, esoteric or kind of like beyond knowledge 
if we just don't know about it. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like if, if we just don't understand it, that doesn't mean it's esoteric necessarily. Because to yeah, to someone like Lama Zopramiche, it's not esoteric. It's just he can do that because he's a he's accessed other parts of his, you know, mind through meditation, right? Absolutely. I had this yeah. experience once during an ayahuasca ceremony where I, I really experienced the, so, you know, m most ayahuasca ceremonies like traditionally uh, take place basically in the dark, you know, there might be mm -hmm. a candle or something like that, but it's, it's pretty dark. And uh, most of the way through the ceremony, um, there was a fire lit and uh, the experience that I had was this very primal, uh, maybe not primal is the right word, but like, like almost like connecting to the ancestral magic of fire and mm -hmm. realizing what fire would have been like for my very, 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 very early ancestors and uh, realizing because of this intention and because of the magic or the way that, you know, is perceived as magic um, and how long and how many times human beings have gathered around fire for this very like positive energy, like energetic charge how that's become healing, why it's still healing mm. now and experiencing that, like, just like somebody that had just discovered fire. And then that leading me into this experience of, or this realization of everything that we consider magic is just science that we don't understand. Yeah, that was my point. And the things things that, you know, maybe a couple hundred years ago, somebody would have, oh, that's magic. Yeah. You know, now we, now we, oh, we can put a scientific explanation behind it and it's not woo-woo or it's not, you know, uh, magic anymore. So how many things that we consider magic or esoteric or, you know, not real um, are around us all the time? We just look at them that way because we don't have the explanation for it. We don't have the, the science to it. And that's one amazing thing about Tibetan Buddhism and these different wisdom lineages is there is a science to it, you know, in their own way, it might not be the same Western science, but it's documented and it's, there's a, there's processes and there's frameworks that you can use to access these different things that maybe are not, um, uh, everybody knows, you know, from a mainstream sort of perspective, um, but they're science nonetheless, you know, and you could apply yeah. that to things like acupuncture, or like you're saying, med different meditation practices that now we're able to start to apply science to. And, you know, um, you know, I often bring this up in, you know, in breath work, for instance, of like, think, think about that within Chinese Sanskrit, uh, Greek and Hebrew, which are all four pretty ancient, you know, traditions and cultures, the word for spirit and the word for breath are exactly the same word. Like there's mm. something that's not a coincidence, right? Like these cultures knew the things that we're just rediscovering now in terms of 
being able to use the breath as the way to access these deeper parts of ourself that other people are like, oh, that's just some, like some woo-woo magic stuff. You know, that's not real, <laughs> you know? So there's, yeah. there's so much magic in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and as you said, it's sort of magic is just often what we can't understand, you know, yeah. or, or relate relate to in the structure. And um, Buddhist magic, or you know, Vajrayana lineage magic is, or as you said, sort of the practices and structure of it, it is just based on subjective science, not objective science. So that's it, you know, yeah. it's it's something repeatable by meditators, you know, through a lineage and through through time. And I think that that is where we put our you know, both research and development, you know, over 2,600 years. And also we put our faith or in that. And, and, you know, for other people that might be like a form of blind faith because they're like, oh, well, you didn't experience it directly or, or you can't prove that objectively. But, you know, we do have these instances where we kind of can because look at some of these meditators, you know, who are, are, science has no idea what's going on, how the body cannot decay for, you know, weeks you know uh, basically and so they're they're trying so so again it's one of these things where where um now it's being studied which is good but also for me i i, I don't i don't need them to study it you know I, right like you know in a way culturally i feel modern western culture isn't deep deep shit it has been for a while and you know there's so many signs that we are in need of a drastic reboot, a drastic reboot. And I mean, so many of us are feeling that and it's, and the problem is, you know, that, you know, a lot of people, I think the fear that comes out of seeing that need um, drives violence and aggression, unfortunately. So, you know, we're in this kind of crux where, you know, are, is that drastic reboot going to happen through violence or not? And I really hope it doesn't happen through violence, but it's, it's happening. We're in the midst of it. There's just no doubt. And, you know, I think part of it is just the, in a way, I mean, I mean, psych the second wave of psychedelics in the West, or you could say in the modern West, because psychedelics always existed in Western cultures in, in um, shamanic or, you know, root earth-based traditions in Western right. culture. But um, this kind of second wave, you know, from the sixties on, you know, you really look at the first wave of psychedelics in the West, it, it brought in Eastern religion. Like the reason you mm -hmm. and I have access to Buddhism is probably yes. because of psychedelics right? in the sixties, right? It opened people's minds enough that they were open to other ideas and open to all these other practices and philosophies. And then the, the, the teachers could start to come and the traditions could start to come. And then now we're in the second wave, which I think is, you know, I don't, we don't know yet what, what it's all about, but, but part of it, I think, is this kind of drastic response to like to a culture in deep, deep distress and, and deep, deep uh, suffering. Um, anyways, probably you know more about that than I do, but but I just wanted to share that perspective. Yeah, no, I I think it's it's true, you know. And um, I was talking to somebody recently, and they were. There was like a there was a curiosity that they had brought up about what what happens when or as the students that have become teachers from that first wave 
as they're getting old and they they're they start to die yeah and um you know my my reflection on that was you know the there are new students coming that are you know maybe more appropriate to the time that we're in um and it's it's amazing you know like um uh you know one one of those first wave teachers right was Chogim Trumpa Rinpoche who yeah. uh is one of those teachers for me that like started to um make me see those blind spots in my own practice by reflecting on what he was teaching and was not you know sort of the uh I think a good sort of metaphor or symbol for uh what we're talking about uh, in terms of like psychedelics or Buddhism, where we might go into it thinking that we're going to get like all peace and love and blissed out. And instead we just get smacked upside the head by, you know, the reality of, of life. And, um, and then, you know, thinking about, okay, well, right now I'm studying with one of his students, David Nickturn. And then, you know, there's also Pema Chodron who's like two radically different teachers from the same teacher, you know, mm -hmm. and, but the way that they teach is radically different. And yet they're still teaching the same thing. They're still teaching the same like Dharma. Um, and, you know, thinking, um, and I, I said, well, think about how many students, just those two students of Chogyam Trumpa had, th that's just two of them. And how many, you know, how many students they've been training and, you know, have been mm -hmm. studying with them and like, who's, who's the next person that's going to come out of that, that we're going to say, oh, that's the next Pema Chodron or something like that, even though, you know, there, there can be no next Pema Chodron, right? Everybody's unique. Um, but I think yeah. you get what I'm saying. Um, yeah. You know, this, this thing that I've, uh, uh, David, David said this during one of the, our lectures that I thought was really interesting. He said, um, we're the recipe is the same for over 2,600 years. It's just, we're just passing down the same recipe, but you have to, you have to make it, you know, if I, yeah. if I hand you a recipe, it's not going to feed you, you know, and I've, I've used that metaphor myself, like just to think about how the Buddhist Dharma has changed in these slight different ways, depending on the cultures that it goes into, you know, yeah. like, that it might change a little bit because there's uh, the ingredients in that country or that culture are a little bit different, but the recipe is still the same, you know, almost like, you know, there were, there were Arabs that emigrated into parts of Mexico and were cooking shawarma and that became El Pastor, right? Which is yeah. like <laughs> almost the same, but not, it's got a little bits of difference, you know? Yeah. Um, I've always found that fascinating about, but and yet, and yet the recipe is still the same. We're just trying to figure it out in maybe modern context. And yet, it's amazing to me that things that happened twenty six hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, are still so relevant and vital and like vibrant to this day. Yeah. You know, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I agree. I mean, our fundamental human predicaments have not changed, and so. Yeah. You know, that's where I, I don't think the, the Dharma of the Buddha from 2,600 years ago has to change. 
because it's it's the fundamental predicaments are the same. And when we were able to um, free ourselves, so to speak, from those fundamental predicaments, um, that's the point, you know, <laughs> like, that, you know, that's the point. And I think, uh, yeah, and, and I think the clothes can change. I mean, that's kind of how I think of it is like the clothes can change. But the fact that we need to wear clothes doesn't change. And, you know, like, and, yeah. and so, but the clothes can change and styles can change. But, but, you know, there, there are these, like you said, there are, there's these recipes and components that, that when those, when those change, it, you know, and they, if they change enough, it ceases to be Dharma. So I think there is some real thought that needs to be put into this, you know, whenever, Buddhism has transferred, been transferred from one culture to another. Um, I think it took a lot of time, first of all, and, and yeah. it took a lot of care and, and a lot of iterations like within that, uh -huh. like, you know, just, just the one I know, which is Tibetan Buddhism or no part of it, no of it through reading about it. You know, it's over hundreds and hundreds of years and multiple, right. multiple periods of translation and, you know, development and lots of teachers coming over from India to help with that. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I really have hope that we can do it in the West. Um, I have my kind of doubts as well, <laughs> but, but a meaning um, um, we're not very, we're, we're not very humble culturally. Mm. Like you were, you, mm -hmm. you, you were naming, you were naming like hubris as a thing. Yeah. Um, hubris is a pretty major obstacle to, to receiving something. I mean, even just, we need to have the idea that we're receiving something that, 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 that doesn't mean like, how do you say it? Receiving something doesn't mean that it's a given, like meaning, you know, it, it's a gift that we're receiving something. It's not like, uh, a guarantee, right? It's not a, uh, like something that we deserve necessarily. I mean, you could say like, we all deserve Dharma, like every sentient being. So that, mm -hmm. I don't mean it like that. I mean it more like, um, how do you put it? Um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll just go back to my, my main idea, which is, yeah, I think there, there needs to be more humility around it. And the humility, you know, it, it is really of just like, for me, and the, my take is sort of just like, you know, sit down for a while, try to absorb it. And, and, you know, if we have some, some, some words of wisdom that we develop out of our practice, we can share with others, that's fine. But um, uh, there's no need to like reinvent it. You know, I mean, it'll naturally come out of uh, a human, a human experience when one has, you know, churned and transformed and sort of cooked oneself through the, the Buddhist path, naturally that's going to come out. So I, I just don't even worry too much about the need for, to make it new or, or relatable or whatever. Cause I think like, how could it not be relatable if we're practicing, you know, like if you and I are practicing and then we're sharing with, with, with someone who studies with us or a coach or mentee or whatever, it's like, how could it not be relatable? Cause it, any, anything, if we have the humility to understand, like it has to come through our experience and that our experience is still developing, we don't have all the answers and we're trying to receive it, uh, understanding, you know, it's not about putting a Tibetan or a Thai monk or Vietnamese monk or Mnon or whatever. It's not about putting anyone on a pedestal. 
it's about, you know, being an apprentice, you know, because this is something that I think is familiar to Western culture or was in Europe. You know, apprenticeship, you don't go to the, the person you're apprenticing with and just like demand everything and then argue with them about the meaning, you know, or, or, or you know, tell them they're right or wrong in certain things. You just, you just try to take it in, have your own experience. You might have all kinds of opinions, but you just work with it, you know. So, you know, you, you sit with it. And then, so so in so in a way, I I mean, there's a lot I could say about it, but maybe I'll I don't want to keep ranting, but you know, it's uh, it's it's something that is is vital, uh, uh, where and and it's tricky too, because like a lot of us apprentice to then turn it around and make a make money with it. So that's not the kind of apprenticing I'm talking about, but of course that can be included because like if we're trying to serve others, we also need, you know, this, we were talking about this earlier of like Mm -hmm. trying to serve others through spiritual spirituality and meditation and all that. If, if we don't have our basic needs taken care of, like how are we going to deepen our work and even have the time to offer it? Cause then we have to do something else to provide for our basic needs. And this is kind of a, a hot button issue because you know, it can happen different ways. It's not like there's one way to do this, but um, but I think the 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 model of apprentice for a, for a very short amount of time to then go out and um, you know make a buck on it. I, I think that's a little bit skewed. But anyways, it's kind of I know it's tricky. Yeah, no, I I mean I think some of it comes back to intention. I know we touched on that earlier, but also like. Um, I guess what, how I'm relating to, to what you just shared is, um, I I see this a lot within the psychedelic context of people that go out and they have, um, you know, a peak experience, like a really strong experience. And then their immediate response to that is I should be serving the medicine. I should be working with the medicine. I should be giving this to others. And yeah. that, that this is the answer is, is through that. And while I admire their enthusiasm, I'm always like, um, do you realize <laughs> yeah. by doing that, you're actually like making your life much more difficult because you have to like constantly do your own work. Like you've given up the, you've given up the option of saying, I'm going to take a break from this. This isn't yeah. for me. You know, like um, <laughs> I, I've been really touched uh, recently by this, uh, this story in uh, the wisdom of no escape by Pema Chodron, oh, where yeah. the, the story of um, this woman that wants to, you know, she, she starts asking people, how do, how do I become enlightened? You know? And, and somebody says, well, there's this, there's this old wo- woman in the mountains and if you go and, and ask her, she'll tell you how to get enlightened. And this woman says, okay, I'm going to do that. Yeah, this is for me. And, you know, of course, goes through this arduous journey of going through the mountains to find this cave and finally finds the cave and uh, goes in and there's this beautiful woman in all dressed in white, you know, very serene sitting there. And she prostrates before the woman and says, you know, teach me, teach me to be enlightened. How do I become enlightened? The woman says, are you sure? And she says, yes, of course, of course, I teach me. And the woman then like turns around and 
becomes this demon with this giant stick and starts chasing her with the stick saying now, now, now. And for the rest <laughs> of the woman's life, there's this demon chasing her saying now, now, you know, and this wow. like wonderful metaphor of the story of like, once you get to a certain place, you can't really turn it off. You can't say like, Oh, I'm just going to like ignore all these things that I've learned and that I've integrated into my life, especially if you're serving others, like it's, yeah, you, you have to keep doing your work. Otherwise the, the suffering and the humanness can easily overtake you. And we see that so much, you know, in terms of ethical violations within these different spaces, um, where, where people forget that, or maybe they're not doing their own work. And then, you know, the humanity comes in, right. Of like, Oh, sexual misconduct, these various, you know, various misconducts. And so I'm always like, I'm always really cautious, you know, of like, well, that's a great idea. Like, yeah, you want to, you want to serve the medicine. You want to serve others. You want to be on this path. That's wonderful. You got to go and do your own work first, you know, so that, so that you can hold space, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And at least, I mean, I I don't think, you know, we have to wait till our work is finished. So to speak, definitely, but but I, but I agree with you. And, and I think there's a lot of confusion on what that looks like hmm. because, you know, in the beginning, we, we, we often don't know how to distinguish between a spiritual ego trip and, a, a, and, a, and an actual genuine moment of insight because, yes. you know, in our, in our lineage, you know, Tibetan Buddhist lineages, we don't take moments of insight that seriously. You know, we, we, we call them meditation experiences, right? Uh, meaning something that comes experience of bliss or experience of clarity or sometimes non-thought or even just some wisdom of like into the nature of reality a little bit. Um, you know, I, maybe I've been fortunate because I've just had teachers who like every time I came to them with some half-baked idea of like, oh, this happened and blah, what do you think? They're just like, they just just ignored the shit out of me, you know? And it was the best teaching ever. I'm so thankful I have those those experiences because they just ignored me. I mean, you know, it was a bit tough. I don't do that with students. I I let students know that's a meditation experience. Like, great means you're practicing, but keep going. Like, don't take it too seriously. But, um, you know, my ego was strong enough, is strong enough that I needed kind of more of a smackdown (laughs) from my teachers. It's a little more of a Tibetan style, too. And so they just ignore me and they just be like, you know, what are you talking about? But it was just really helpful because it, it, it helps us to, to tamper that and recognize. Because like I was saying, you know, with, with uh, this, this recent passing in the last few days of Lama Zopa Rinpoche, it sort of like shows also this, this way to work with life and death where it's just sort of you're just working with it. And it's not like he didn't make a big deal about his death. You know, he didn't like make a big pronoun. Now I'm going to die and, and, and watch me meditate, you know, uh, while I'm dead, you know, like he didn't make some big show of it. it just happened, you know? And so, so that kind of natural, even my other, my other root teacher, I, I called him cause I was really sad and he, he's friends with, with, with Lama Sopramshe. And um, I said, you know, Sopramshe, I said, Rimshe, uh, uh, wow, Lama Sopramshe just died. You know, what happened? He said, yeah, I was with him 10 days ago doing pujas. And yeah, I was kind of shocked at first. And he said, but you know, 
that's impermanence. That's just how it is. So like his response was compassionate towards me because he understand I just I just lost a teacher, but also it was a teaching in and of itself. It was just like a short WhatsApp message, but it was a teaching of like, of course, man, like, of course, Scott, you know, this is the way it is, you know, like, right. it's not a big deal, you know, he'll come back, you know, he's just, he's just transferring out of this, this body. So it's like almost like this is something I've never seen in Western culture, personally. I mean, maybe yeah. it exists, just not in the modern Western culture I've had access to. It's through the mirroring I experience with, with, with the wisdom of, of, you know, I consider Tibetan culture to be an indigenous culture. You know, the mirroring of that. So there's so much more, you know, going back to our conversation on, on receiving the Dharma over time with humility there's so many lessons we need to learn beyond the philosophy of Dharma, beyond the, you know, beyond the words and even the practices. There's so much that gets mirrored just through the embodiment of it and other practitioners. And I'm really praying, you know, that more and more Western practitioners become realized because then we'll also have something more familiar to us culturally of how it looks to be embodied and awake, where, where I think right now we just have a lot of hubris. I, I don't know. The problem is the people who are embodied and awake, they often don't have the hubris. So they're not, you know, they're harder to make contact with. So there is that, right? So they're probably out there. But, uh, you know, what I see kind of is, is, is more kind of the, the, the hubris in the culture. You know, I see both actually, to be fair. But, but, um, but anyways, just to yeah, that point of having that mirror, that's just like how simple some of these things are. And we come, and, and all of that to me is a result of ego clinging being less, you know, like, like, I think, you know, when I, similar to your story about the psychedelic, you know, when I hear someone come to me and say, mother Aya told me this, and I'm like, dude, please leave me alone, you know, like, I don't mean that in like a harsh way, but it's just like, you know, the people I know who've gone deep in those traditions, who've spent time in the Amazon jungle in Colombia or other countries, they don't act like that going around right. proclaiming mother Aya did this or that they just they're simple they're, you know again I, I i don't necessarily think psychedelics is a path in and of itself but in these indigenous traditions they have their purpose they have paths right. yeah. and i know a few people who have gone quite deep in that and they're they're not flashy people about it you know mm-hmm. often actually a, a shaman uh someone i know work with a lot who who is an indigenous shaman from colombia um, he doesn't even know who he, who, how he is, you know, he's like, she describes him as very, very humble and very skilled at the work he does with people hit the healing work he does. Right. right. Um, and, and he, you know, he, he's so, he's so oblivious to his own talent because he's so humble, you know? And he said, and, and so she, she often comments, those are the kind of people, you know, I mean, in Dharma, it's slightly different who we're looking for, but nonetheless, I think I think the qualities are similar, and like those are the kind of people we want to look towards uh, as as people to apprentice with. But again, it's like, how does that look for us culturally? We don't know. I don't know yet. You know, like a, a loud yeah. mouth. You know, someone. It doesn't mean they don't have those qualities. It's it's sort of tricky. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, there's for me. There's an interesting. Um, I, I, to kind of go back to like, you know, sort of making a living from, you know, a spiritual sort of, uh, career or, you know, job, um, 
there there was an interesting thing when I went, you know, I remember the first time that my partner said, you should be teaching meditation. And I said, to who, you know, and, and she said, do you realize that like people, most people haven't been meditating for as long as you have. And the, the bewilderment for me partially came from being taught by these, you know, realized, I consider them realized masters that like, do have these powers and do have these esoteric things. And, and yet we'll sit there and tell you, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm just, I'm just a monk, you know, or I'm just a guy, you know, yeah. and you're like, bullshit. Like I've, I've seen it. I've, you know, I've experienced this thing, but you know, they're going to sit there and be like, ah, oh, you know, I'm not that special, you know? So yeah. it's like, if somebody that obviously has that much realization is sitting there modeling that level of humility. What right do I have to put my toe in the arena? You know, um, that's that's how I looked at it coming into it. I think the other thing that came up for what you're saying is um, maybe yeah, maybe something quick, I just that I want to say. So there's a heavy cultural element there. I'll, I want to talk on that. Yeah. 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 Okay. We can, we can pause right there and, and keep going with that. Yeah. Oh no, I don't want to interrupt you if you had. Oh, um, uh, the other thing that I wanted to like kind of reflect on and what you said is I, I feel like what I've noticed is that at least within America, um, oftentimes the, the thing that's like attracting people to, to different Buddhist teachers is like, um, more what you would call advanced teachings, like going to Vajrayana tantric empowerments yeah. without necessarily getting the foundation, you know, of like within a traditional uh, sort of path of study and meditation, you're learning all these different foundational things, you know, things like meditating on the impermanence of everything, including yourself. Uh, meditating on the preciousness of a human life and like being able to muster that into something meaningful. Um, you know, all these different sort of, you know, within the Buddhist path called the, the, the gradual path or, you know, the, mm -hmm. the steps on the path so that you can actually like really utilize and integrate these quote unquote higher teachings. Right. And that people are just oftentimes jumping in to those higher teachings, those empowerments without that knowledge, and then maybe not getting the, the most benefit out of it because of that, you know? Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting to me there. I like, I think that it, we would benefit from maybe taking it a little bit slower. Um, and also like, I, yeah. I, I feel like what a truth for me is that all of these practices, regardless of whether they're preliminary, basic or higher practices, like they're only so useful if you're only able to use them when things are going good. Like it's, mm. it's easy for me to like be all full of love and light. If everything in my life is going well, Yeah. but how am I able to use those resources when the shit hits the fan? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's something that like I've, 
long considered of like a beautiful teaching of Tibetan Buddhism is like, um, you, you find out like how much you've integrated when like in the face of adversity, because ultimately yeah. like, that's kind of what these practices are for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, as I was saying earlier in our conversation, I think there's often, you know, for me, whether we're working with, with the foundational practices in, in Buddha Dharma or the more traditional kind of Vajrayana practices or, or, or just sort of general Mahayana, you know, studying emptiness or working on analytical meditation or whatever, um, they, you know, they all, they all, we, the, the reason why we're doing it has to be cultivated. And, yeah. and, you know, I, you know, we describe that as the view, the view of why we're engaging in, in meditation in the first place. And the view is a, is an expanding exploration in Buddhism. It's not a singular thing like, yep. Oh, okay. Like, well, let me read a, a paragraph on that. Okay. Got it. That's the view. Let's do it. You know, it's like, that's just the start where we get kind of some idea of like why we're doing this or why, why we might do this. And I think sometimes we don't, like that because we want to make it original or we want to make it kind of like our own um and and the, you know the problem with that is like you know usually we just follow our own ego trip we just follow our own self-absorbed attitude of what why we're doing something so the dharma is there i, I call it a two-way mirror or like a you know where it's kind of like i have the or it's just a mirror where we're, we're using the dharma we're using the study of the view of why we meditate in buddhism to look back at our own habitual patterns. And I think this is kind of the crux of it for a lot of people. It's usually what they're reacting to when they want to be like, hey, I, I want to explore my truth, man, kind of thing. It's usually, it's usually a, a resistance to belief. It's a resistance to religious belief. Um, and and without the recognition, when we use the Dharma as a mirror, we don't have to use it as a belief system. We just use it as a system of looking back at our own beliefs and patterns. So I think part of the problem with hubris is there's not even a recognition that we have beliefs in the first place. You know, there's not even, there's not enough introspection into like, oh, I have fixed ideas. I have biases. I have limiting beliefs. I have beliefs. And, you know, in a way I would say like, wh what isn't a belief in our life? You know, from my perspective, everything is a belief. And so the Buddha Dharma kind of gives us a view or a perspective that we grow and we cultivate and we kind of our understanding of and our relationship to as a way, as a belief, an alternative belief, you know, initially, but it's an alternative belief to question belief in itself to go beyond belief. That's what I love so much about Buddha Dharma. So it's kind of like, you know, tying it into to what we've been talking about. Um, and you asked me about this in the beginning of the call, you know, that's why, why, I made this kind of post or video that, that I think meditation techniques in and of themselves are dead ends because they don't lead anywhere because there's no purpose in them or the purpose is limited because it hasn't, you know, we haven't incorporated um, another way to question our own ideas about ourselves and the world. Right. And yeah, I think if one just wants to go ahead and question, there's not, that's great. Like that's a wonderful way to work with just opening up, a mind of curiosity, openness, and questioning in general. But I don't know, like for me personally, and again, this isn't about anyone else, if I didn't have some some things to go off of, like like that, you know, the Buddha discovered and, you know, basic ideas to explore or questions to explore, 
I would have never thought of those questions because they're just too deep. You know what? I, I would have never initially, I would have never, and that's just me. Maybe I'm just dumb. I don't know, but you know, I never would have done that. Uh, where, where, you know, so it's kind of this, this, I don't know. It's this, this, this treasure map. That's how I view the Dharma where we're kind of like, we're, we're reading about it. We're, we're kind of, Hmm, you're contemplating it. And then we're engaging in a practice based off of that idea. And then we actually can see it for ourselves. You know, we can, we can go to the treasure site and excavate the treasure to a certain degree. And for me, that's like so powerful because it also goes beyond belief. It goes beyond religion at a certain point, you know? I think that's the nail on the head for me because earlier we were talking about like faith or like lack of doubt. And for me, yeah. that's where that comes from is like, you know, uh, like my partners asked me before, like, oh, why, how can you so easily believe X, Y, and Z about Tibetan Buddhism? And I'm like, because I've experienced it. And there's a difference between thinking about something and questioning it and have curiosity and, and having this mental process up here of trying to like cognitively put the pieces together and experiencing something. Because yeah. in the experience, there's absolutely no doubt you're just there. And even, you know, even that sometimes there's an unpacking and there's an integrating over time, but there's something there that's, I guess to tie it back to what we were talking about before is like, um, it, it, it goes beyond concepts. You can't really put it into words, but you feel it, you know it because yeah. you've experienced it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, for me, that's where, you know, when people are come to me confused in their meditation, I don't point them to another technique. I mean, I may introduce some, some embodiment practices and things like that to get out of the thinking mind a little bit and to get more into awareness. But I usually eventually point people to the cultivation of a view, you know, and, and that doesn't mean I need people to be Buddhist or, you know, right. I want to push Buddhism on anyone. It just yeah. means like at some point we have to choose some kind of a view that that actually has some truth in it and we need to to weigh or kind of like you know play squash ball or ping pong between our beliefs and assumptions and what that's telling us right yeah and and you know i mean we're doing this in the world anyways all the time but we're usually just doing this from a very very limited myopic judging mind you know of like we see a little clip on something and immediately we make a judgment and we shut down our mind. So, you know, for me, the, the whole key to happiness, religious or not, or spiritual or not, is curiosity, you know? Yeah. Because it's just, you know, ask, you asked me about that in the beginning. It's just sort of the sense of like where we don't live in conclusion all the time. And so, so for me as a practitioner, I use the Buddhist path to help me to, to not live in conclusion as much. That doesn't mean everyone has to use the Buddhist path, but I think it's helpful and it saves time to use something, you know, to help us investigate in a deeper way. Um, what I call like, yeah, non-conclusion based, non-conclusion based living, you know, not living in conclusion all the time. Um, it's just, it, it's so tricky, including like the extreme is in our own lineages as well. Right. You, know, you can see people get so obsessed with with being a tibetan buddhist they, they they can't see out of that framework you know 
And, and for me, it's sort of, again, we have a phrase actually in the lineage, in the tradition of, uh, for, for talking about this, where you say, you know, don't lose the conduct and the view and the view and the conduct. And, and what this means is we, when we lose the view and the conduct is a kind of puritanism where, where we're, we're, we're too focused on the parts and the container of something. We're not using the container to question and to be curious. Um, and when we lose the conduct and the view, it means we've, we've, we, we, we become sort of nihilistic in a way, you know, we, we don't, we, we're not, we, we're not using enough of a structure. You know, that's what I said in the beginning to me, it's sort of to first developing some amount of conviction in something through exploration and curiosity, not through blind belief, obviously, then committing to that and then, and then cultivating that commitment based in a structure, you know, which would be the conduct kind of element, mm -hmm. right? Like the structure of how we live and what we do. But if we like adhere to that structure as puritanical, we totally lose the openness and the curiosity of it. But if we don't have any structure at all, uh, there's there's no you know it's just wishy washy you know and, and there's no there's no progress that can be made. So I, I, I see this as kind of like fundamental things that that when meditators are struggling and they come to me for help, uh, often these things are missing. You know? Yeah. If I'm following you, it's it's kind of like uh, jazz, like where jazz might <laughs> seem so chaotic, but really there's a discipline and like a knowledge and a practice of these fundamentals and these frameworks for a period of time so that the rules don't have to be followed in the same way so that you can be free flowing and, you know, seem like you're imp completely improvising. And when if a beginner that never had done that fundamental practice was doing that they would just be banging on the keys and it would be noise exactly yeah exactly yeah and i use that example a lot uh, of jazz because um yeah a lot of people kind of mistake jazz for that i mean it depends on the type of jazz but uh mis mistake it to be sort of free it, it, it's it's actually not that free it, it's, <laughs> it's just a bunch of different patterns reorganized in a different way and then the player has the freedom to like organize those and respond to, to the moment. And for me, that's like going back to our, our discussion on, on Dharma and, and integration to into, into modern day householder life. For me, that's where the creativity is. I've been writing a little bit on creativity and Dharma uh, recently. And um, there's, you know, the creativity is not in making it new in my belief. The creativity is in the freedom and how we want to respond in the moment through freshness, through openness. Because like when there's when there's less preoccupation of like what I should do or shouldn't do, or um, you know, like looking out for self, basically. By should and shouldn't, I don't mean like harming or harm to harm or not harm. I mean how I'm interacting as a self, as a fixed person. When we let that go a little bit. We just respond. And so we have to like learn to trust that more. And there's some creativity in that response. And what I mean by trust that is um, we have to trust that, that, that we will, we will conduct ourselves compassionately from that space, you know, and, and, and we, we also make mistakes and sometimes we don't. And then we're like, Oh shit, I just messed up. Oh, I'm really sorry. Okay. And, and, and then we look back, we, we come back, we gather ourselves, we keep working with the structure and we try again. But there's something in that creativity, which I think for me holds the conduct and the, and the view of non-duality in, in union together, where the conduct should be compassion, you know, 
But if compassion is always fixated on how am I going to look here or how am I going to do the best job possible, that's not compassion from my perspective. That's self-absorption. So the compassion is actually, what does this person need in this situation? Or what does this situation require? And sometimes we just have to leap in. I mean, Trumpa Rinpoche talked a lot about that. Uh, what I'm, I mean, basically, I'm pulling this straight from Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche. Um, and, and it's it's vital as a householder practitioner because we're constantly in situations and navigating conversations and relationships and, you know, being annoyed at our, at our, at our you know, partners and families and them being annoyed at us and being super happy with them too. And, you know, all kinds of emotions. And so I think there has to be a lot of freshness and, and generosity in, in, in not trying to bring ourselves into the situation all the time, but showing up, you know what I mean? Yeah. How's, uh, I was having this conversation yesterday and um, if I'm following you, so please, if <laughs> sure. let, let me know if I'm not, but um, I was having this conversation yeah, yesterday, like expressing <laughs> frustration about, um, I guess the struggle that I feel sometimes trying to follow the Bodhisattva path and taking the high road and like being the bigger yeah. person because there's a part of me that wants that treatment in return. And so when I'm put into a situation where somebody is like mistreating me or acting like a child and I want to respond in kind, there's a part of like, there's a real gut reaction of fuck you, fuck you. You know, like I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to stoop to their level. I want to like retaliate in that way. And then, that might be happening in my head, but ex, you know, something externally says, no, no, you got to take the high road. You have to be the bigger person here. And then like, there's when that, when that's happened to me, there's like this, this real fighting sometimes of like, yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, <laughs> just for once, I want to, I want to like, you know, react in that same way. And so it's, it's hard sometimes to like really, walk the walk you know it's easy to like it's easy to talk the talk right it's easy to read it in a book and be like oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna be a bodhisattva but sometimes <laughs> the human aspect of it sucks <laughs> i agree yeah i agree and that's that's where it's challenging and i think you know the way i'm changing in how i look at this too so i, I just want to put that out there first that i'm not i don't like I'm not set on my idea around this, but this is the current way I'm thinking of it. You know, I think coming at this notion of what a bodhisattva is, is a bodhisattva is beyond what most of us can imagine a person can be. Right. Um, and so that's the first thing is sort of like just not assuming we know what a bodhisattva is, myself included. And then the second thing is that um, I don't think a bodhisattva is trying to be. You know, so it like brings this whole other question of like, how do we respond? You know, how does one respond? And let's say like a bodhisattva, someone, a bodhisattva being someone who's free from their own delusion. You know, how do they respond when, when there's no more, there's no more, there's no bodhisattva there. There's no, there's no sort of sense of, of something being personal to them. How are they responding from that? And I think that's the, the richer 
more interesting question because then we can be like gentle on ourselves because of course we're going to flounder because we're we, we we're stuck in our ego claim most of the time yeah. and so we're you know we're, we're like that's what i meant so you you did hone in on what i was trying to say i think which is that you know we're we're constantly trying to navigate our relationships through our own limited view of ourselves and our perception but as soon as we recognize that's not fucking working anymore then we start to experiment with another way of course this requires meditation and development of shamatha and vipassana practice no doubt in my opinion right but at some point we got to take a leap and you know i recommend doing it in 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 moments that aren't that have less less um what do you, what do you call it less risk or consequence you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> like at first i highly recommend that but um but you know we we, we just take the leap I, I recommend it actually just with ourselves first in relation to our own emotions this is something so beautiful that you know in Silkner and Shay's teachings that have really helped me of sort of working with embodied practices of just allowing feeling and emotion to arise and not trying to control them, not trying to dictate what they should be or not be. And just allowing that, you know, heart of just that rawness to be open, which is very challenging with some emotions for me. But, um, yeah, but that practice in and of itself is kind of a way we can work internally where we don't have to like, it, it, there's consequences, but the consequences are, are less because we're not, you know, we're, we're not necessarily going to make a mistake in relation to someone else as quickly. Hmm. Um, so the risk is lower, but yeah. So, so I kind of recommend people first do that kind of thing, working with their own emotions. And, and, and what, what, what I'm really talking about here is, is we're leaping into a sense of not having to control anymore. And, you know, I think the fear is if we don't control, it's going to get out of control. Or if we don't control, we're going, we're going to suffer more. And I think we have to break through that fear by trying something different. In this case, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche called in work, his book, Work, Sex, Money, he calls it like leaping into, kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but like leaping into the freshness of the moment, you know, like leaping into the freshness of the situation. And what he means by that is just letting go of trying to like control and outthink the situation so to speak. Mm. Um, yeah. And so my, my take, I, I'm not a Bodhisattva, nor do I really have any idea of what a Bodhisattva right. is. <laughs> exactly. I know, like, I know on paper, like what the books uh -huh. say, yeah. but I, I think a Bodhisattva is living that experience full time, 24 seven, and they're responding yeah. from that experience. Yeah. So, so you can see here, Bodhicitta is actually not even Bodhicitta. Loving kindness is based on kindness. Compassion yeah. is based on loving kindness. And then bodhicitta is based on, on compassion and all three of those. But compassion being the, the fundamental aspect of what happens to a mind that's free, it's, it's, it's also free to, it's free to express compassion without limits because there's no sense of like having to, to use the ego to navigate a relationship or a situation with someone. And so the Bodhisattva's compassion is also free of limits of what that needs to look like. Because all it cares about, all it responds to is what's needed in the situation. It's not responding to, you know, what, what I think it needs or what the Bodhisattva thinks it thinks it needs. You know what I'm saying? Again, be careful. I do. I'm, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And uh, 
what you were describing with with your teachers you know what what he was saying in terms of like being able to feel the emotion has been such a game changer for me in the last few years and that's that's one of that's another one of those like blind spots that i've had to like confront and have that like that moment you know of like why do i feel like like why am i having an internal guilt trip because this is what i think i should be doing or this is how i should be reacting or that there's something wrong with me because i do feel anger or i feel hurt i feel upset and i'm not full of this idealist you know uh, unconditional love and compassion for every single person around me you know just allowing myself to to be messy and human and like feel the emotion and be in the moment um yeah and yeah and i i i want to make it clear also i was not trying to call myself a bodhisattva in any way shape or form <laughs> yeah i didn't get i didn't i don't know if the listeners i didn't get that i yeah. didn't get that perspective i didn't get that uh, from you but but yeah yeah i think bodhisattva now the word is getting a little bit misused not not by you uh here but i i'm, I'm concerned because the word is starting to describe somewhat you know people are using the word in a way it's not intended which is um someone who helps people um, someone who helps feels wonderful. Like we, we should all aspire for that. We should all aspire to help each other, to be kind, to work towards justice for each other, to work towards like better, uh, situations for, for humanity and, and everyone who, who shares this world with us. That doesn't define a bodhisattva though. So that's yeah. where I think it's tricky because it, it doesn't demean someone because they're not a bodhisattva. You see what I'm saying? Like, but right. a bodhisattva is someone who, who's realized emptiness they no longer have any connection to a to a fixed you know dualistic experience of self and other they, they've they've removed that 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 illusion is gone and so it's another level what they're functioning on so i think you know I, and again in a way like some people would argue well, what does it matter if we words matter you know like like how yeah. we use terms matter because when you know we could lose that relationship to the path if we start to use this term bodhisattva to represent uh, just just a helper or a kind person. But but I understand for some people's concern is they want to help to foster the idea that we we can all become more helpful, kinder, uh, more compassionate. Um, but I don't know. I don't even consider that necessarily like like a like a spiritual or a Buddhist thing. That's just like a human thing. Oh, we absolutely. should all be aspiring to that. So I think, yeah. And, and, and it's almost like that's a requirement for a Bodhisattva, but a Bodhisattva has gone a little further. So anyways, just a little sidebar, but, but it's kind of one of my pet peeves lately, because I'm seeing the word Bodhisattva being used out of context. And it kind of goes back to like anyways. what we were talking about, about like the shamans that like the real shamans aren't sitting, going around being like, I'm a shaman, you know, like, um, no, I would imagine that the real bodhisattvas aren't going around doing that either. You know, they're just, they're too busy being whatever that means. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, it reminds me of, uh, like the, the Tao is saying like the Tao that can be spoken. Isn't the real Tao, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's just yeah. the being, it doesn't have anything to do with the, the labels or. Yeah. I, mean, yeah I, think, I think I heard recently one one Tibetan Buddhist teacher, one Lama say like, yeah, you're, you're much more likely to find a Bodhisattva at like a football game than, than at a Buddhist center. 
you know? And yeah, you know, I, I, read I don't a... know, I completely agree with that, but, but I, but the sentiment <laughs> of it, the sentiment right. of it, I agree with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in the, it's in the moments, maybe it's in the being, you know, like, um, yeah. you know, there's like this famous, like saying from uh, Mr. Rogers that his mom said, like, look for, look for the helpers in like the, you know, the paramedics or the people comforting the crying child. So it's not, you know, it's like in these moments and just like we were talking about earlier, I don't think we named it directly, but I feel like we were dancing around it that um, enlightenment is possible, but it's not permanent. It, we go yeah. back to that state of humanness and we can experience these moments. Perhaps we could say the same thing about this Bodhisattva concept of like, it's it's possible for us to have these moments of it and then come back to our sort of human experience and yet also acknowledging that there are people beings that have reached a permanent state of it you know where they're just they're in that state all the time um yeah and, the, and these are these are this is beyond kind of our imagination right now of, what, yeah. of how we think someone could be because i i think it's hard to imagine like how does one function outside of the idea of oneself, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right, like, 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 like. I don't know about you. Like all day long, everything's in relation to me, you know. Right. Which basically is admitting I'm an ego clinging twenty four seven, pretty much. And so, you know, uh, I and, and but you know, just to say, part of our path is is the recognition of that. Like, if we don't recognize that, how are we going to go beyond it at some point? have to recognize i would say for me that's a painful thing to recognize it's not like i like saying that out loud as a truth but it's it's just that's how it is you know and and how do i know that because i see how my mind's you know i have enough awareness to see how my mind's interacting with things you know and so yeah. so yeah so it's kind of this big question of like i think that's the conundrum that's the you know, we were describing it earlier a little bit that's that's the challenge of the path is is we can't think our way into it it's just right. something that we have to release and release and release and then at some point that release becomes you know permanent <laughs> or beyond permanent and impermanent yeah letting um, letting go of this I, concept of addition and realizing it's even more about subtraction of just letting go and yeah yeah kind of coming back to that center Exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of just, for me, every time there's resistance, I know I'm not, I'm not releasing something. And so I have to, you know, I have to lean into that. And, and then of course, as a, you know, in our tradition, we're, we're, we're also studying and getting familiar with like, well, what are we releasing into? And I'm kind of saying we're not releasing in, into anything whatsoever, but we're not just surrendering to anything. We are sur we're surrendering to, to the spaciousness of emptiness. So we kind of need to get familiar with that too. Otherwise, we can miss the mark of what we're surrendering into. So, you know, there's like, it's both very open and wide open and also like strangely specific in a way. You know what I mean? Like for me, yeah. I don't know about other people, but that's kind of how I relate to it. It's like, but that specificity gets less and less conceptual the more we practice. You know what I mean? So it's not like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I got, I didn't realize we'd go on so long. I got another meeting, man. I, I I'm oh, enjoying cool. this yeah, so no, much. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. It's been great. Um, 
so before we wrap up, um, do, do you have any pro I, I think you have a new program coming up or how can people connect with you if they want to, to learn more or work with you? Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, I do. I, I'm, I'm, I've been running a, I, I do one-to-one mentoring. You know, I've been doing that for a long time. I also teach, you know, public talks everywhere. You, people can go to my website to check it out. But um, yeah, the last three months I've been running a group mentoring program as something like distinct from both my public Dharma teaching and my one-to-one work. And it went really, really well with a group of about 13 people, very intimate. And so I decided to just make this an ongoing program where kind of, you know, people come in as a community and I'm able to offer mentoring to, to people in, um, um, you know, a community format, uh, but, but, but with a lot of depth of digging into the Dharma. So yeah, that, that's going to, the registration for that will open up in the end of May, but people can go to my website, scotttusa.com, click on the mentoring section and read more about it and um, sign up for a, um, like a pre-launch list if they want to join. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll definitely put that on the, the show page. Um, Scott, thank you so much. And I think that's a, it's a sign of a good conversation that we just kind of kept flowing and kept <laughs> going and um, just a pleasure to, to reconnect with you. I agree. Yeah. Thanks so much, man, for asking me to come. And, and yeah, I agree. I feel like, I feel like we just got to like the middle of it, you know, and we could just, you know, yeah. So, so the, as you said, <laughs> it's a good sign. Yeah. I, I appreciate all your wisdom uh, you shared. I really do appreciate that. Well, I thank you for saying that, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure how much wisdom there was, but yeah, just, you know, I think it's, it's beautiful, like sharing our experience. And I, I feel like I learned a lot just listening to you as well there were some some definite points where i'm like oh i'm gonna go back and listen to that and kind of like digest it a little bit more because there's like a lot of richness in it and uh so yeah i just appreciate you you sharing thanks so much man i really appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode thank you so much if you could share it with somebody else that you think would enjoy it as well that would be very helpful uh we're still building the podcast it's still a growing, developing uh, entity and spirit. And so, you know, if you're enjoying it, share it with somebody else. You know, the, the, the point of this podcast is uh, to practice and to experience these ideas that we're chatting about. And so, uh, you know, there's only so much benefit from just listening. I hope that you're able to take something away from this conversation that makes you curious, makes you inspired to practice something yourself. Um, and subscribing to the YouTube channel or leaving a review on a audio platform just really goes a long way in helping us spread, helping get this in front of more people. And I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. I appreciate you immensely, love to hear from you, and um, hopefully you keep enjoying the podcast because I have many more episodes that uh, I can't wait to share with you. So until next time, my friends. <laughs>